Hello. Welcome to episode one of my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and I have named this episode, appropriately, I believe, The Mandate of Heaven. The Ming Dynasty ruled China for nearly 300 years. And before we get into the Qing Dynasty, I thought we'd have a little lesson this episode covering the Ming Dynasty so we get a better understanding and context of where this is all going. Now, firmly ensconced in the Chinese pathos both politically and socially, is the concept of the mandate of heaven. And this simply was, if you were a good emperor, you had the mandate of heaven. If you weren't a bad emperor, you probably didn't have the mandate of heaven or had lost the mandate of heaven. I think it boils down to that, pretty simply. You reap what you sow. And for the Chinese... I think this helps explain their connection with their political leaders and how they think of their leaders. The mandate of heaven is nothing new. It had been around for quite some time. It's an ancient concept. A lot of authorities believe it started during the Zhao dynasty, which they ruled beginning from 1000 BCE going forward. However, I've also seen some I have, excuse me, I have also seen some authorities that believe it the mandate of heaven is longer than that. Confucius referred to it or something similar to it in his writings, and he lived during the Zhou period. So specifically what is it? Well, I've already basically explained it. But if you were to create some rules for it, they would be this. Since there's only one heaven, all right, then there's only one mandate, right? And one emperor. Okay, pretty simple. The second obvious point about it is that only heaven can give this thing. I can't, you can't, no mortal human being can. And last but not least, it's not permanent. It can be lost and frequently was. Incidentally, when the mandate was lost, that usually was the time where you see dynasty changes in China. And the mandate or signs that the mandate was slipping away would provide warnings such as famines, droughts, foreign invasions, rebellions, riots, natural disasters, disease. These were all signs. And some of them are more common than others. And certainly over enough period of time, some or all of these would appear. But it's more how 
that leader, that emperor, that dynasty dealt with these things to either or both prevent them and to um, rebuild from these is what was important. So if, if I'm a rebel leader in China and I rebel and I overthrow the government, then I'm going to claim I now have the mandate of heaven. And probably many would agree with me. And I'll go further than that and say that the prior leader, the prior emperor, had lost the mandate of heaven. And probably they would agree with me on that too. So simply then, if the mandate was present, China and its people prospered, they were content. And if not, the opposite. Bad things. Not good. Not pretty. I think the mandate obviously forces emperors to do well. Another cool thing about the mandate, in my view, is that anyone could have the mandate. Not necessarily who I came from or not necessarily if I had a lot of money or wealth. Theoretically, a peasant could become the emperor of China and that peasant could claim that he or she had the mandate of heaven. This is similar to the European concept of divine right of kings. It's, but it's only similar in one respect, and that is that both the divine right of kings and the mandate of heaven are given by heaven. All right? Beyond that, they're different. Let me give you some examples. With the divine right of kings, it would be considered treasonous and a sin to rebel against your, your king or your queen. Not so with the mandate of heaven. The divine right of kings didn't really depend upon whether or not you were a good king or a queen. But the mandate of heaven did. The divine right of kings was more or less permanent. The mandate of heaven was not. Okay, so enough on the mandate of heaven. What happened specifically, what was going on in China during the Ming Dynasty that caused it to lose the mandate of heaven? All right. Well, there were many things. And I don't want to get into too much detail about these things because this is not about a history of the Ming Dynasty. But on the other hand, I don't want to gloss over them to make it sound as if they're nothing. Keep in mind when I'm, when I'm giving you the facts of what was going on toward the latter part of the Ming Dynasty, these were very serious matters in China. People were losing their lives. People were concerned and scared. People were pissed and didn't like it. Okay? Let's start, for instance, with the Ming Emperor Wan Li. Now, he reigned for 48 years, from 1572 to 1620. He happens to be the longest reigning of all the Ming emperors, and there were 16 of them. From what I can take out of his biography, the first half of his reign was uneventful, unremarkable, okay. But in the second half is when it seems like things begin to fall apart. 
signs emerge that there's trouble or that there is a combination of things happening together are spelling big trouble for that dynasty. For instance, well, for many, many decades, the Ming have been fighting along their very their long, long borders. It's a big country. But on their northeast border of their country, particularly against, at that time, uh, they would call them the Manju or Manchus in what we call Manjo, which is the Mandarin word for it, and the Western name for it is Manchuria. They were along the northeast border between China and Korea. All right? And these geographic tensions had been a problem for many, many years. But they became more frequent during the latter half of the century, the latter half of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th century. And these skirmishes or these battles or these border wars were becoming more common, more deadly, more frequent, more scary. All right. There was also a very major rebellion late in the 16th century in Sichuan province, which is in southwest China. It's called the Bo-Zhou Rebellion. The Ming were forced to spend a lot of money and a lot of energy in repulsing that rebellion. The Ming also got involved in a war with Japan. I, I don't know enough about this particular war. I'm going to briefly mention it to say whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing for the Ming. I'm just telling you what was going on. Uh, that war would be called the Imjin War, and it was also going on in the late 16th century. And basically, Japan had invaded the Korean Peninsula and were moving up the Korean Peninsula, and the Ming Chinese believed that this was going to pose a threat to them. So they felt they had no choice but to send their massive army into Korea to repulse the Japanese. And they did so, but it took them two attacks to do it. And this was, of course, very expensive to the Ming. So the Japanese finally left the Korean Peninsula. Well, on top of all that, there was a worldwide silver shortage. Uh, now, China had no control, or they were not the cause of the silver shortage, but it affected them greatly. The Chinese government collected taxes through silver. So if you were a citizen of China at that time, you were expected to pay your taxes to the government in silver coin. Well, as the price of silver spiked because it was short, is scarce, people were having more and more difficulty to pay their taxes. Local commerce between local people and their merchants was, was being done with copper coins. So people were forced to trade in copper coins for silver coins. And as silver spiked, you, you don't need an explanation of what's happening there. People had a very difficult time not only paying their taxes, but feeding themselves. 
And this was uh, of, of great concern, as well as the fact that it, it led the Ming Treasury uh, down a, a shortfall that it would never recover from. Also in the early, seven, early 17th century, there was a plague in Jiang and Henan provinces. And as I understand, there were a large amount of deaths, and this, of course, uh, didn't help things at all uh, with the citizens and what they thought of the government, their, their Chinese government. Mother Nature cannot be overlooked. In the late 16th and early 17th century, there was a un very unreasonably cold and dry period in northeast China. And this shortened the growing season, and this caused crop failures and scarcity of grain, causing crop prices, grain prices to rise, to skyrocket. And this was make it very difficult for people to be able to afford to eat. And a lot of people starved as a result of this. And it seemed as if the Ming had no answer to it. The Ming government had no answer to this. So all of this obviously caused great chaos, particularly in the last 50 years of the Ming dynasty. And it tested the Ming's leadership. And uh, I don't think I'm going too far on a limb to say they failed in that, to that extent. And probably rebellion w was going to be, uh, or, or being overturned was going to be a, a, a more common threat. And indeed, it became the threat, and it, it, was the, it was the end of the Ming, it was the cause of the end of the Ming dynasty. Uh, a fellow by the name of Li Jurchang led an uprising in Shanxi province, China, which is in the northern part of China. Xi'an, think terracotta soldier, soldiers, is the capital of Shanxi province. So you have an idea where, where it's at. It's northwest of Peking or Beijing, the, the two cities, uh, they're the same city, Peking, Beijing. Anyways, he gathered up a bunch of peasants and they revolted against the Ming dynasty for a lot of what we've been talking about. His name, by the way, was the Dashing King. And I don't know how he got that name, but that's how he's referred. Anyway, in 1640, he sacked the capital of that province, Xi'an. From that point forward, he ruled that part of China like an emperor, but only until, of course, the end of the Ming dynasty, which wouldn't be long from this point. There was also another guy by the name of John Xianzhong, who also led an uprising in the southern part of Shanxi province. I don't know what was going on up there, but wow, they, they, they had their problems. Uh, and he had the colorful name of the Yellow Tiger. And he did the same thing. He gathered up a bunch of pheasants, I mean, sorry, pheasants, peasants, and revolted. And this, again, uh, was of great concern to, to everyone, including the, the Ming government. The Dashing King, the first fellow we referred to, eventually made it all the way to Peking in 1644. So in 1640, he had captured and sacked Xi'an. Now he moves southeast to Peking, and he's at the gates of Peking. All right. At that time, the emperor, the Ming emperor, was named, his name was Chong 
Jen. And he was in Peking calling for his army. Come help. Come help. But the army wasn't there. The army was hundreds of miles away to the northeast of Peking, too far away to do any good to help repulse the invading army of the Dashing King. Now, I don't know why the Ming army was up there, and I don't know if they knew or, or should have known that the Dashing King was coming with his army. I don't know. Nevertheless, the Ming army wasn't there. And so the emperor, seeing the inevitable, committed suicide. He hung himself from a pagoda tree that is behind the forbidden city in Peking. And I understand that tree is still there. So on April 24th, 1644, Li Jurchang, the dashing king, captures Peking. And the Ming dynasty is basically over. That ended nearly 300 years of the Ming dynasty. Now, the Ming dynasty, by the way, were ruled by an ethnic group of Chinese called the Han. And we'll talk about this the next episode a little more. So effectively, the end of Ming rule meant the end of the Han Chinese rule as well. Okay? But our story doesn't end there. Not quite. The Ming army is still out there. It hasn't been defeated. And as far as we know, it's still loyal to the Ming dynasty and to the Ming emperor. That army, by the way, is led by a very, a very competent and very good general by the name of Wu Sangui. Uh, and he's there in Hebei province, China, which is about halfway between Peking and Korea, although that's a real rough geographic estimate, but basically in the middle. And he sees what's coming because the Dashing King is coming to engage his army. Wu Sangui apparently is very concerned about this, so concerned that he reaches out to the neighboring state, which is Manjo, Manchuria, and asks them for help. Now, this is rather odd because they have been battling each other for decades. However, Wu Sangui must have felt that desperate times called for desperate action, or I like the adage, a drowning man will grab the edge of a sword. That kind of thing probably was going on. That was his mentality, I suppose, when he, when he did this. That Manju army was led by a fellow by the name of Duo Arguin. Uh, he's referred to in Western Texas Dorgon, D-O-R-G-O-N, but his Mandarin name is Duo Arguin. We'll talk about a lot more about him later as well. Anyways, he Wu Sangui asked Duo Arguan for help, and Duo Arguan agrees under one condition. 
He wants to lead the combined armies of both the Manju and the Ming, and the Ming general, Wu Sangui, agrees to this. So they're there together, and here comes the dashing king. And on May 27th, 1644, in a battle called the Battle of Sanhai Guan, Sanhai, not Shanghai, Sanhai Guan, which is in Hebei province, the two armies clashed. They met on the battlefield. The estimates are, if you can believe them, that the Dashing King had around 60,000 men and the combined Manjo, Manjo, Manju, and Ming army had around 160,000 men. Nevertheless, it was a decisive victory for the combined armies of the Manju and the Ming. So the Dashing King is beaten. He runs away flees the battlefield, goes back through Peking, on his way back, I suppose, to where he came from, which was Shanxi province. And a year later, he's hunted down by this very same army he had just fought and killed. So so ends the Li Jurchang story. All right? And then on June 6th, 1644, the Ming and Manju army reach Peking and enter its gates and declare a new dynasty. Wow. However, nothing is always that clear. <laughs> um, remember when we, I mentioned earlier a guy by the name of Yellow Tiger, Zhong Xianzhong, right? Well, he was still out there, and he fled China. In fact, he went to Taiwan. In 1662, he went to Taiwan, and uh, he founded the kingdom of Tongming, where he planned to lick his wounds and come back and invade China and resurrect the Ming Dynasty, which is strange because he was rebelling against the Ming Dynasty about two decades earlier. Uh, anyways, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, back and forth between Ming loyalists, Ming patriots, and the and the new Qing Dynasty for many decades after that, and we'll get into some of that in the next episode. But what I want to say is that finally, in 1683, in a naval battle off the western coast of Taiwan, called uh, the, the islands are called the Pescadora Islands, there is a place called, I guess they were called Penghu Islands at that time. There was a naval battle there, and over 400 ships engaged each other, and they were between the Qing Navy and the Tongming Navy, and eventually the Qing Navy was able to beat the Tongming Navy, and they invaded Taiwan and annexed Taiwan into China, and so effectively ended Ming attempts to overthrow the Qing dynasty. One other thing I want to talk about before I leave this is Wu Sangui. Uh, he'll come back later in our story. 
But right at this point, he was rewarded by the Qing for his help in overturning the Ming dynasty. He was given a basically a fiefdom of his own where he was autonomous and uh, could do whatever he wanted to do in this area. And that was in Yunnan province in southwest China. And there he stayed for uh, a decade or more until he decided that he wanted to try his hand at rebellion and rebelled against the Qing, uh, which, uh, spoiler alert, uh, he failed. So, therefore, that ends pretty much our story of of the Ming. Before I stop this, though, I want to talk a little bit about what caused the Ming, what lessons can be learned from this, from the Ming collapse. Well, this has been debated, but, but here are some of the thoughts that I've read. One is that toward the latter part of the Ming dynasty, the emperors were disconnected from the people. They, they, they pretty much stayed in their palaces. They didn't associate with the people. The people didn't have a connection with them. And I don't think that never works well for, for uh, a leader. Second thing is there obviously were a lot of problems along the periphery of China, particularly along its northeast. And if you were living in that area at the time, you could only imagine uh, the instability of your lives and, and, and what, you know, you didn't know who was going to come knocking on your door next or who was going to take your stuff or who was going to kill your family. Uh, you didn't know where the threat was going to come from. And the inability of the Ming government to stop any of this uh, was, of course, of great concern. Uh, and this was going along in other parts of the border with China, not just the northeast border, but particularly along the northeast border from, from the Manju. There were also, as we talked about, the rebellions within China and the inability of the Ming to stop, not stop these, but to prevent these from happening. And of course, eventually, they put, they put the Ming dynasty down. There was also, also the economic issues with the uh, Imjin War with Korea uh, and the Japanese and the silver shortage. And what that did to the Ming treasury, it, it nearly bankrupted it. And then, of course, there's Mother Nature and there's disease. And there were, I know there was, in the early 17th century, there was flooding, rampant flooding of the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers in China. And again, this caused additional crop failures and uh, famine. There you have it. Next time, we're going to talk about the Qing and its founding father, a guy by the name of Nuar Hachur. Thank you. <laughs>